The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Ask the average person on the street to combine these two words, entrepreneur and literature, and what will pop into that street person's brain? Ebooks, maybe. The future is digital. And that might be right. Who knows? But is that really such a difference? A difference in delivery, sure, the cost of paper, and a difference of a readerly experience, let's say. We know it would be a big change for publishing, but publishing is not literature, is it? They're linked, but not identical. And when I said readerly experience, well, I'm not sure the difference is all that great. If electronic novels are still text flowing down a page or a screen. The difference between holding a book and holding a book-like electronic object might not be that much. For us sentimental types, we'll miss the feel of the paper and the heft of a book, but in terms of delivering words and stories to a discerning mind, it might not change literature all that much. Entrepreneurs and literature. Literature moves in sync with technology and societal change. The Elizabethan stage, flourishing, produces the context for a Shakespeare. The printing press and literacy rates make long-form narratives possible, economically viable, even attractive to the young, hungry author looking to earn a bit of bread. The internet makes it easy for anyone to blog or tweet or produce short videos or podcast, I suppose. But let's stick to our core forms of literature, poetry, plays, novels. Poetry and plays have a long pedigree. Novels can find predecessors in ancient history, too, but their rise, their big flowering period, is much more recent. Recent enough that we can examine the change agents who made it happen and the backlash that came next. How did novels change readers? What was the response? How did society absorb and adapt? We talked to an expert in change, a student of innovation and entrepreneurs, Jason Pfeiffer, today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. A little different angle on literature for you today. Jason Pfeiffer is here. Jason is someone who sees the future by looking at history and the present, who sees trends and patterns and disruptions and analyzes how they're managed, what changes are here and how they're handled, studies how that power of change is identified and deployed. We apply some of that spirit and know-how to the rise of novels. Quick history, we can simplify things by sticking to English, and we will. But even if we include all languages, there really aren't that many novels before, let's say, Cervantes, right around the year 1600. That's the modern era of the novel. Reaching back before that, in Japan, we have the tale of Genji, the early 11th century long narrative and some Chinese novels after that. In Europe, there were chivalric romances, 
that preceded Cervantes. He was in part writing in response to those. Ancient Greece and Rome had a handful of what we might call novels. Italy had something similar in novellas like the Decameron before Cervantes. But the novel as we know it today really started with Cervantes, and it was in the 17th and 18th centuries that it took off. This is when the novel becomes part of society, part of daily life when we have not just examples of long prose texts, but lots of novels being read by lots of people. What happens when something is suddenly available and before you know it, it's ubiquitous? Anyone old enough to remember the world before the smartphone will know what kind of a change that is. Suddenly it happens. Wow, everyone's holding these things, looking at them, experiencing them. Is that a good thing? A bad thing? It's here. It's doing something. Are we better off? What do we gain? And what do we lose? So let's bring out our guest now to hear how he analyzes this kind of change and to see whether we can apply it to the novel. Jason Pfeiffer, after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Jason Pfeiffer, the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine and the host of the podcasts Build for Tomorrow and Problem Solvers. He's also the author of the new book, Build for Tomorrow. He joins us today to talk about changes throughout history, including changes that happen in the world of literature. Jason Pfeiffer, welcome to the History of Literature. I appreciate you having me. I thought it might help to put some context around your work and your interests before we get to literature. What drew you to focus on change? Yeah, so that's really the focus of the podcast and the book that share the same name, Build for Tomorrow. And it came out of these two dual curiosities that I had. Number one, I had noticed, and I think we'll be talking about this a little bit later, particularly as it relates to literature. I had noticed that if you look back in history, what you find are these really funny recurring moments in which people are very, very upset about something new for them that t- 
today we think of as totally commonplace, like the novel, for example, but also teddy bears, coffee, chess, umbrellas, the elevator. And I, I was just so curious, why is this happening and why is it happening over and over again? And then, of course, you then wonder, are we doing it too? Like, what are the things that we're freaking out about right now that tomorrow people will be like, why, why were you so worried about that? <laughs> and so that was number one. And then number two was, you know, I spend all my, I spend a lot of my time talking to entrepreneurs. Yeah. And the thing that I had, I come to realize is that the, the thing that drives success, like the most important trait that anybody can have is adaptability. It, it is the single most important thing, I think, in the journey of, of, of anybody who is building anything. And I, I, I just, I realized that these two pursuits could be married. To understand people today and how they succeed is also to understand how we got to the world that we have right now, despite the concerns and fears of new things. And that set me off to do this podcast that explores that and then also write this book, which is really a guide to adaptability for anybody who's going through change. Mm. So for for an entrepreneur, it seems like there are two different uh, things that you could be focused on. I'm wondering if you see more of one than the other or if you could just sort of help me understand this. Yeah. An entrepreneur, it seems like, could be somebody who creates this change, who drives this change, but who needs to understand how are people going to react to it? What will be their fears? You know, I have this new product, this new idea, but how do I get people to go along with the adoption of it? Or how do I deal with any pushback against it? And then the other thing that comes to mind is entrepreneurs who sense that a change is happening and figure out how to apply their own skills of invention or, you know, their own creativity in order to benefit from that change. Yeah, that's a really wonderful observation. And it's totally true. We are all in some way or another, both creators of change and navigators of change. And obviously, if you're in the business of creating something brand new and introducing it to a mass market, then you're doing that change. You're creating that change at a, at a larger scale than others. But I think that everybody is doing it in some way. You're introducing some kind of new change to your to your lives, to your world, to your family. My wife and I are in the middle of buying a house right now. And uh, th this was more driven by me than her. She, she was a little more satisfied where we were and I wanted something new. And so I have introduced a, a change to the family, right? And so I, I think that both of them at their heart are about identifying not just the core value of the thing that you're doing, but also how you're building upon something that you already have. I'll give you an example from the question of, well, how, how do you introduce change? I think that people who are in the business of creating something new are often so taken, reasonably so, by the thing that they're making that they forget that other people don't understand it as well as they do. And so as a result, they forget to make the case for why this is useful. And one of my favorite examples of this is when you, if you look back at, for example, the introduction of the car, which at the time was called the horseless carriage. So when we talk about today, who was primarily responsible for the mass adoption of the car, we think of Henry Ford with his innovation in manufacturing. And true as that may be, there was actually something that happened before him that generally isn't in the history books. I heard this from an academic who wrote a, a history of the car. And, um, and she told me that in the earliest days of the car, so first of all, people hated the car. Like they called it the devil wagon. If if somebody drove a car down the street, they, people would stand on the street, on the side of the street, on the sidewalk, and they would yell, get a horse at the person who's driving. And 
the um <laughs> the people who are the, like early auto manufacturers eventually realized that they were talking about the car all wrong they were talking about the car and they were advertising the car as a replacement to the horse but the thing mm. is people liked their horses they the, the horse was a member of the family. Right. Their family had had horses as long as they had ever known. And now you're coming along and you're like, this horse is stupid and you should get rid of it. And pe- people don't appreciate that because the thing is that people don't actually like new things. What people like are better versions of old things. And so the auto manufacturers had to stop talking about the car as a better horse and start, I mean, so rather they, I just blew the punchline. They had to stop talking about the car as a replacement to the horse and instead talk about it as a better horse. And so what does that mean? That means using phrasing in which you're comparing the car to a horse, naming the car after horses, which is a tradition we still have today, Bronco yeah. and Mustang. Back then, they would even put like kind of fake horse heads on the front of cars and, and ultimately get people to feel like this isn't something wildly new. This is a better version of something I already have. It is building what I call a bridge of familiarity. And I think that if we're introducers of new things, we need to build that bridge. And also if we're experiencing some change in our own lives, we need to identify that bridge. What is it from our past that we still have that we can carry forward? Like even if you are going through a wild change right now, something about your experience, something that's core to you is not going to change. And that is ultimately the thing that you're going to bring as value to whatever your new experience is. Yeah. We are so used to the concept of horsepower as the measure of a, the power of an engine. We forget, I think, that for people in the in the first days, it probably was quite dramatic to say, well, this is 25 horsepower. This is 100 horsepower. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. But but that but that language became popular because it gave people a reference point. This was right. Like, you know, now you use the word horsepower and it I mean, you almost forget that it's referencing a literal horse, but it, it, it was because back then that's how people would measure things. And it wasn't <laughs> just a system of measurement. It was literally the way that they understood transportation. Yeah, right. This would be like having uh, a team of 12 horses pull you or a team of 20 horses. Most people couldn't afford that. They'd say, oh, well, I only have one horse or two horses. This is uh, I'm going to be really zipping along. You know, the thing that comes to mind for me, a change I saw in my lifetime is uh, email as a replacement for writing personal letters. And I was thinking about it before we started this conversation and thinking, you know, there was a lot of lamenting. And even still today, you'll hear grumpy old men like me saying, you know, boy, we used to write letters, you'd get things handwritten, you'd get something tangible, there was something really nice about it, you felt like it was private, like a a message just for you, and there's something that, that email just doesn't quite capture. But if I had said to you, you know, in 1985, here's a letter, by the way, how would you like to have a letter that could be sent instantly would be free. You could send it anywhere in the world instantly. You could send it to 100 people all at once. You could have a thread that would record your correspondence back and forth with people. Mm -hmm. You could exchange multiple, you know, on and on. It's so clear that what email does is, you know, so much more powerful and so much more, such an improvement and yeah, we, we might miss a few things about, you know, I I used to like getting the mail and I didn't like getting junk mail. <laughs> now I only get junk mail. And, and there's something that's kind of, um, that was kind of nice about the pace of it that you didn't feel obligated to respond so quickly. And we all have email inboxes that is, you know, has become a burden and all of that. But if you just think about the function of it, if email is presented as this is going to be like 
a magic letter. I mean, it's going to be like this. It's going to give you like it's like a supercharged form of writing letters. It probably would have gone down a lot easier. Yeah. So it, the, a lot of things to say about what you just said there. So you're completely right. And the big challenge I think we have when we experience change is that we often equate change with loss. We see something mm. new. And the first mm -hmm. thing we do is we identify something that we like that we think we're going to lose. And then we extrapolate that loss. And we say, well, because we're going to lose this, I'm going to lose that, I'm going to lose that. But ultimately, gain comes uh, in ways that we can't possibly anticipate. And I think we would all do well to try to identify that gain or at least anticipate that gain instead of just the loss. Because the things that you just described, you know, it's funny. One of the things that people rightfully, I, I deal with it too, uh, um, uh, struggle with with email is the volume of email and the feeling that you need to be uh, so responsive to it. So part of that is actually a cultural problem. It's an expectation that we're setting, but it's also a very, very old one. You know, you can go back to uh, <laughs> the, this This was described to me by a, a historian. So Samuel Morris, the inventor of the uh, Morse code and, and the first commercialized telegraph, which was the first time it's really, it's like wild to think about it. This is the first time that information was able to travel faster than a horse or, or, or you know, or like, a, or like another mode of uh, physical transportation. Completely wild. And so at Samuel Morris's retirement party, people got up and gave speeches about how revolutionary he was and how he contributed to society. And then there was one guy who stood up and just started complaining about how at the end of the day, before Samuel Morris came along, he would leave the office and nobody could contact him. But now he feels like, <laughs> you know, the speed of life has moved, has, has, has sped up. And, and he didn't really appreciate that. So from the very moment that we introduced the speed of information, uh, we got that. But then also, like, let, let's not forget that with email wasn't just by itself a replacement of wonderful romanticized things. First of all, if you look back in human history, you can go like long beyond email. You can find this in the mid 1800s. You have um, people complaining about how poor other people write, right? Like it's not like we had, we were all wonderful writers. We were actually mostly terrible writers. It's just that there's a survivor's bias where you see these mm -hmm. wonderful letters written by these famous people to each other and they they were educated and well, and well written, but most people didn't actually communicate like that. It was also extremely expensive to communicate and um and so you had to do it you had to do it with exceptional sparingness. But also, you know, that intimacy of a, of a handwritten letter, it's true that if you want to romanticize that and perhaps, you know, you had some very specific case in which you would write handwritten letters to whoever it was and uh, and and maybe you don't do exactly that anymore but there are all these options that can still give you that sense of intimacy for example i trade voice memos with friends all day long it is a wonderful intimate mode of communication where we can speak to each other on our own time uh, we can share thoughts we can share about our lives and it feels so much better than an email we have infinite new ways to do things and those new ways are capturing the essence of the old ways we just have to be open to seeing it yeah. Okay. Well, let's take a quick break. And then what I want to ask you about when we come back, I want to turn to literature because the rise of the novel, I think we're going to be talking about today. And and that might not be something that just replaced the objections to it. I think were a little bit different from just a concern that we were going to lose something, but they were worried about what the advent of the novel and the rise of the novel was going to bring along with it. Oh, they were worried about so much. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, we are back. So we promised we were going to talk about the novel and what people's concerns were. I just want to make sure before I let you turn you loose on this, what are we talking about here? Europe in the 17th and 18th centuries or England or where exactly are we focused on our discussion of the novel? We're going to be primarily focused on Europe and uh, North America as it moves over there. But I'm actually going to start you much earlier, which is ancient Greece. And the reason for that is because you have to consider that in the grand history of humans telling stories, the novel is a pretty novel concept in that for most of our stories, really up until like, so ancient Greece was introduced, at least in in Europe and European and Western culture, introduced the, the Hellenistic novel, which was, for many many people would mark this in time as, as the kind of introduction of invented stories. Prior to that, what we're really talking about are stories that are foundational. They are telling us about ourselves or about our nation or about our leaders or whatever, right? They are teaching us. They are organizing us. And people didn't really see a lot of value for a long time in the idea of fiction, of, of a novel. Uh, Plato, for example, actually found it to be completely manipulative and, and suggested that the state should be in control of any fiction. <laughs> Um, and because, you know, you can see that a, a fiction, it plays on our emotions, it draws us at a gut level, and if we're captured by that, we can be controlled, it can shape our understanding. So that, that's, a, that's a power that he felt the state should hold. Um, but, uh, th- and then, you know, the, the novel... It made its way throughout Europe. Uh, you know, there were French, Italian, Spanish traditions, uh, and and even into the 17th century, there was these kind of debates in high society about how valuable this was. There were reports of of like students uh, reading novels under the desks in school, the way that kids might text uh, now. But you know, but this was still a pretty high class problem because printing was expensive, and so most people didn't have access to these. But then in the late 18th century, as paper becomes cheaper to produce, novels explode. And that's really where we start to see an also explosion of opposition to the novel. So, you know, this is so it's late 18th century. This is now happening across the pond, but, you know, both, both in America and Europe. Um, and uh, I talked to this, this professor. Uh, her name is Catherine Golden, a professor of history at, uh, at uh, Skidmore College, who has done a lot of work into this. And so she laid it out to me. I'll, I'll tell you, there were four main arguments with classes of argument against the novel. So biological, medical addiction and moral Mm. i am most uh, familiar with moral yes the idea that oh these these novels these young girls are getting all of these ideas it's encouraging them to be licentious or it doesn't have the proper uh you know veneer of of good christian moral thinking and that sort of thing that's exactly right. Right. If you, this is, I mean, Catherine told me, if you read too much, you're going to be influenced. You're going to become dissatisfied with your life. Right. These are, these are great concerns, particularly for the men who are controlling the lives of the women in their lives. And, uh, but then it also, it expands beyond women and, um, and into, uh, uh, the youth as well. People are very concerned about the youth and the way in which uh, novels can be a corrupting influence on, on education. Thomas Jefferson wrote this letter in 1818. I, I pulled it out to read to you. Um, so I'll just read you a little bit. He wrote, this is li- literally, this is what Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson wrote, a great obstacle to good education is the inordinate passion prevalent from novels and the time lost in that reading, which should be instructively employed. When this poison infects the mind, it destroys its tone and revolts it against wholesome reading. reading. 
reason, in fact, plain and unordained are rejected. So you can see what people are concerned about here, right? Like here comes these stories, these frivolous stories, and they're taking people away from the the good and pure and important things in now, their lives. Now, as I snicker at these fuddy-duddies from the past, I think about uh, as soon as we hang up, I'll probably be texting my friends and saying, can you believe the kids with these video games? And and uh, <laughs> yes. they are. it's, it's yes. warping their brains. I can't believe I've, they're spending their whole summer vacation. You know, every minute they, every spare minute they have, they're they're on the Xbox. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and that's so. I'm so glad that you drew that connection because I th- really think that we need to catch ourselves. And people will say, "Oh, this time is different. This time is different." And and and, and I'm not suggesting that every behavior about every new uh, technology or or entertainment factor is 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 healthy, right? But we need to separate what we might call overuse with these larger concerns that we have about addiction or some kind of moral decay, right? Oftentimes, if somebody is, and I've talked to a lot of addiction researchers about this, oftentimes if you see somebody um, who is who is kind of too fully immersed, spending too much time in a... Um, you know, involved in video games or whatever the case is that look, it's, it is, it is, it is very likely the case that the video game is not the problem, but something else in their life is. And and it's worth understanding what that yeah. is, right? Um, because if they do not have enough of a social connection, if they do not feel like they have enough control over their lives, um, they may turn to video games as, as a way to um, feel some sense of control in this environment. They can be more in control, and, and and oftentimes addiction researchers tell me that when people come in and it appears that they have a video game addiction, if you if you treat that as an addiction, you're never going to solve the problem. The problem is underneath it, and once you solve whatever is going on in their lives, the the like overuse of video games starts to recede. So it's just it's always worth paying attention to like what is the holistic experience of somebody and not simply what am i seeing that i don't like the good thing in terms of us getting along and the generational shift is i clearly remember growing up in in an atmosphere where we didn't have much to do other than watch television for a form of entertainment and yet we were bombarded by an older generation saying i can't believe how much time they're spending on the boob tube you know we had Mm -hmm. radio where we had to imagine things ourselves and that was so much better and it was so much i don't think it was that much better (laughs) no and and you know what you can totally find because it because it exists and it exists in droves you can totally find medical literature from from like the you know the 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 third or whatever, where people are writing about the dangers of radio addiction. These kids are spending too much time in front of the radio and they're completely absorbed and lost in it. There was something called uh, Radio Face uh, that newspapers wrote about, <laughs> the idea being that that women in particular were spending so much time in front of the radio, intensely focused on the dramas <laughs> that they were hearing, that their faces were hardening into Radio Face. So yeah, I mean, this is just, just repeats right. that time. Okay, so getting back to the uh, our four prongs, we've not now I think covered addiction a little bit. That sounds like that was something people were worried about with the novel. They're spending too much time reading novels. That's right. That's right. So right. So we also we definitely did. There was the addiction, and then what would happen as a result? Here's another. I pulled out a bunch of quotes for you. So another one from um, social reformer and nurse Florence Nightingale. People might uh, recognize the name. Writing in 1852. Here's what she's describing. Uh, she's describing uh, women reading uh, novels. They are exhausted, like those who live on opium or on novels. All their lives exhausted with feelings which lead to no action. So you can see people really concerned <laughs> about the way in which these things are going to draw people away from from their real lives. Yeah. Which which again is is you know it's a it's a it, it is this is a phrase that these addiction researchers had used for me and you could apply it to novels today. It's pathologizing a common experience. 
you're 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 seeing people be immersed in something that they enjoy, and then you're pathologizing it, and you're saying, oh no, there must be something terribly wrong here. Instead, you know, which is a, a more natural what we do is that I mean, look, we all if we find a good book, even right even now at a time in which people are not quite concerned about this, yeah. We might disappear for a day or two, right? We might want to blow through it. We're going to binge on this. You know, does that mean that we are maybe leaving some other parts of our lives unintended to? Yes. Is this a medical condition? No, it is not. It's also, you know, you can have different experiences with it. I mean, as much as my kids and I will benefit from, in theory, will bond by, you know, taking a trip to a museum or taking a, a road trip together or something like that. Chances are we'll be in the car and, you know, they'll be on their devices and I'll be driving or whatever. And it's not necessary. We're not necessarily bonding. And then we'll sit down. And right now we're binge watching The Sopranos. And it's a very shared experience for us. You know, yes. we, we react to everything together. We talk about it before and after each episode. What do you think is going to happen? Can you believe what just happened and we've done it now with several different shows and you know when the viewing experience is good and you're completely engaged and i also i don't do this so much anymore but i used to use it as a gauge of what they were taking from something uh like when we watched mm. breaking bad and i would take it you know do they get that this is wrong do they get you know are they <laughs> are they laughing in the right spots and and troubled by the same things and and all of that, it was, I felt like it was kind of effective parenting, even though I'm sure my own parents probably would have been mortified by the idea and said, you know, oh, you can't, you can't parent with a television on. You got to turn it off and, and play a board game together or, you know, do something like that. So I guess it's, uh, anyway, I don't know where I'm headed with that, but. No, oh, that's, uh, well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you that that really resonates with me because I, so I'm a child of the 80s and 90s and I can remember my mom in particular watching 90210 with me and. <laughs> And, you know, at the time, I think I just thought she was like monitoring to make sure that nothing too saucy was going to happen that I would be exposed to. But I think that she was doing exactly what you're describing right now, which is um, which is kind of using it as a lens to understand what I understand of the world and also as a, as a prompt for conversations, because if something happens on the show, now you can talk. There's a reason to talk about it. Th these, I think, are good things. You know, ultimately, what it comes down to is that this is not about the technology. You know, the technology is, is an ag agnostic tool. It's really about how you decide to use it. Hmm. Exactly. Okay. So we covered addiction and morality. And you had said the other two, I guess, were biological and medical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this this stuff is um, this stuff is less uh, it sort of survived our historical understanding less. But I'll tell you because it's just fun. So, okay. There was a belief in the, in the 18th century that men had what was called a catabolic constitution. Women had an anabolic constitution. Basically, what that means is sort of similar to the way that we now understand like warm and cold-blooded creatures. So the idea is that is that you know men being in our in our, our you know I'll just kind of use our more modern familiar terms here. So like men were warm-blooded, which is to say that they kind of can produce their own energy and they can keep going. And women were cold-blooded, which is to say that they have a limited store of energy and they when they use it then they they run out. Uh, and uh, and so the what you wanted to do back then is you wanted to make sure that your women were conserving their energy for survival and reproduction, taking care of the family and so on. And there was a lot of concern that when women were reading novels and getting emotionally invested in the novels, that it was it was drawing upon that limited storage of energy. <laughs> and so so you have you have all of these uh, you have all of these really crazy sounding. So, you know, that, that's kind of the biological part. And then to get into the medical part. 
you have all of these crazy pieces of medical literature from the time um, explaining that reading novels is going to lead to early menstruation, infertility, nervousness, insanity, right? All of which is built off of what happens when you when you overly tax the woman. Um, mm. And uh, so here, for example, I got you know I got another one for you is um, so um, so. It was, this is, I, I got I got two, I'll read because they're just fun. I was like trying to decide which to read, but I'll just read both. So, okay, so number one is from a British medical journal in 1797. It's called Novel Reading, A Cause of Female Depravity. And uh, and the, 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 the author here is editorializing. Um, he, of course, writes, I have seen two poor, disconsolate parents drop into premature graves, miserable victims to their daughter's dishonor, and the peace of several relative families wounded, never to be healed again in this world. And was novel reading the cause of this, inquired some gentle fair one? I answer, yes. And then here is uh, from 1882 in a publication uh, at the time called The Lady's Guide in Health and Disease. Uh, So it, it wrote... One of the most pernicious habits to which a young lady can be devoted, uh, oh, that, that would be the novel, sorry, I guess it sort of starts in the middle. When the habit is once thoroughly fixed, it becomes as inveterate as the use of liquor or opium. The novel devotee is as much a slave as the opium eater or the inebriate. Mm. So you can see where people are thinking, right? Um, this is not just a, this is, a, a, but you know what? I, I do think that there's actually a line to be drawn here. Um, and the line to be drawn here is that we see children spend a lot of time on social media or whatever. And we start to make these, what I think are pretty wild and, and unfounded by science uh, assumptions about the impact that it's going to have to on them, that they are not going to become, that they're not going to be able to develop into social creatures, that they, they're not going to know how to connect with each other. And, you know, look, I, I, I every generation has its own challenges and, you know, too much time spent on any one thing is, is not good. But let's keep in mind that we were concerned about stuff like this a long, long time ago, and everybody has thus far turned out fine. It also does not seem out of the realm of possibility to me that my grandchildren will be looking at me and saying, have you ever seen grandpa is he can only talk to one person at a time. And, you know, and they will just be expected to be able to carry on four or five conversations almost simultaneously. And it'll just be an accepted part of the workplace or whatever. And we look at it and say, oh, my God, they're going to lose the ability to really focus. And instead, it could be that they'll gain an ability to multitask that is complete will be completely foreign to me that's totally right and in fact that's already been identified in television so there have been these there's been really interesting studies there was a a piece uh in the new york times sunday magazine like decade or two ago that i uh, blew my mind when i read it but basically it walked through this interesting research into how as television storytelling has become more complicated right early Mm -hmm. television only had an a line and then suddenly there was an a and a b line and then an a and a b and a c (laughs) right and now if you watch game of thrones there are like 74 different plot lines happening (laughs) at the same time and um and that as that has happened happened different generations who grew up on different modes of tv storytelling Mm. were able to follow all of these threads differently so older generations had a hard time keeping up with a more complicated form of storytelling so now is what does this mean you know does this mean that somebody's become like literally smarter as a result no you know not necessarily i think there what we have are kind of changes and differences in the way in which we are utilizing our knowledge I, i i talked once to um this guy named Lee Rainey, he's the head of the Pew um, Internet Research Center. I may have the name of that organization a little bit wrong. But anyway, he he made this great point to me. And he said, look, in the past, a 
quality of intelligence was ability to retain information. Right? If you could remember and, and, and recall a lot of information, that was a sign that you were intelligent. Now, a sign of intelligence is that you are able to quickly find and process information. And are the, is one better than the other? Not necessarily. They are simply different. And it's worth recognizing. Yeah, and it's your surroundings that demand it. Because if, if you're in a Google society, you don't need to necessarily have a, the retention of a lot of factual material that you can quickly pull up. You need to be able to sift through it and process it and analyze it. But you don't necessarily have to have committed it all to memory. That's right. Uh, you know, and um, I think that I know like one phone number by heart and it's my wife's <laughs> right. phone number, right? I, I don't need to remember yeah. all these phone numbers. I can use that brain space right. for something else. Now, let me ask you something else about the novels and the reaction to it, because one of the things I was thinking as you were describing it is it kind of reminded me, I mean, I don't know if you've read The Yellow Wallpaper, but it, there's a lot yeah. of, uh, it's basically about a woman who's been locked away by her family, and she is kind of going crazy in this room. And the response that she gets from her her husband and her family members is basically, you're trying to be too creative, you're thinking too much. It's all of your artistic impulses that are are leading to these these thoughts of insanity. You know, that you're basically going crazy because mm. you're too creative. And what you see clearly from reading it is it's them stifling her creativity that is driving her crazy. And it, it's, you know, it's, this yeah. is from the, I think it's from the 19th century and it, it seems very forward looking now. And we look at novels now and we say, no, no, this isn't going to, this isn't going to drain your energy. It's going to improve your ability to empathize and to, to feel these emotions. It, it will enhance all of that. But there is kind of this feeling that maybe people I don't know. I, my guess is people did recognize that at the time, but the voices of the people objecting, what they were objecting to wasn't a, a good faith belief, or they were maybe self-deluded into thinking it was a good faith belief. But what they were probably detecting was that people were, you know, it's also, it also kind of brings up Frederick Douglass and, and the idea of if you allow slaves to be literate, they will soon be unhappy and they will have more That's ways right. to express that unhappiness and more ways to share it with others and so on. And and it's almost like if we let women read a bunch of stories about women who are in love, they will maybe realize that what they have has not been nearly as good and, and that they identify with the people who are doing something about it. So I think you're spot on. You, What you just described there reminds me of two things. So number one is, yes, what you see throughout history and what I really believe you see today is that when people go on moral crusades against something, what they are often really doing is articulating their own fear of being left mm. behind, their own fear of mortality, because they are not as needed anymore. <laughs> and um, and their standards are not as recognized before. And what they want is to exercise a kind of control. You see this, I mean, this is, it's most obvious in the ways in which throughout history, when you see people oppose some kind of new technology, that it, 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 it always, or at least almost always, falls upon men talking about why this is so bad for women, um, right? Like another class. So we talked about the novel being a, a, a means of escape um, for women who might be in, in unhappy lives. Um, the Bicycle was another mm. one where men were very, very concerned about 
women having bicycles because of course if they have bicycles they can go somewhere without the yeah. man and that you don't want that and so you would see all of these wild theories uh, about how terrible the bicycle is for women's health for their bodies for their minds there was there was a lot of talk about how the spinning of the wheel was actually going to make people insane um, so um, and then similar similar you know I talked about radio face there was also bicycle face which was a sort of similar thing it was like if you pedal too hard that the strain of pedaling is going to harden your face but um uh, you know, and and oftentimes, where's this stuff coming from? It's coming from people who are afraid of being displaced. I would I would caution anybody if you turn on, let's say, cable news and you see somebody going apoplectic over some cultural shift. Um, possibly that cultural shift isn't so bad. It just might be bad for their current control over the cultural narrative. Were there defenders of the novel who could address? I mean, I guess I guess we could say the novel was victorious. Uh, we yes, <laughs> so it it must have had defenders who saw through it, or would you say that people were just? It was more that the reading public just wanted to read novels so much that the marketplace just kind of stepped in and said, "There's money to be made here, and this is an affordable pleasure, and as long as people are willing to buy it, there's nobody who's going to be able to stop it." You know, there's not some some uh, holy roller somewhere who's going to stand up and and <laughs> be able to get it blocked. So I there yes there were certainly plenty of defenders of the novel and surely more defenders of the novel than than opponents as I, as I've pointed out it's, just, it's a lot of fun to find the opponent um but you know what you saw is a market that evolved and drove adoption as it became more sophisticated it reached more people a lot of those early novels that people were reacting so negatively to were what were what were called dime novels um, mm. so you know they were novels that were that were either kind of violent or they were they were like you know kind of what we would think of as as uh, Fabio yeah. style romance <laughs> novels at the time and um, and so you know the people saw those as as frivolous and uh, you know you could make the argument that they they weren't the most sophisticated entertainment um, you know who cares but once those things took and they developed a marketplace i think the creators of uh, of literature and of course the this button this budding generation of writers who now had an ability to reach people started to find other ways in which uh, they could do that and, and and create new forms of storytelling and that really opened the marketplace up and you know you again you see versions of this today where uh, facebook at first seemed like a weird and scary thing for uh, for older people during the you know the kind of rise of facebook and uh, and now wouldn't you know it you know young people have moved off and they've gone on to other things like tiktok but now older people are using facebook because they actually found a use case for it they found that it's uh, it's a wonderful place to share st- as my as my parents do share uh, photos of their grandkids and so on and so as, as the market shifts and, and evolves it makes a broader case for itself and and, you know, I think that ultimately there just was never enough of a true movement to stop the novel. What there what there was was a lot of noise and um, and, 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 you know, banging on desks, which, again, is similar to what happens when you turn on cable news. You know, you you, you find people who are upset about the latest uh, dance craze or some stupid thing. Right. But uh, it doesn't stop the dance. Right. craze. Now, let me ask you about a couple of other uh, areas of literature that people not so much literature, I guess, but let's say publishing. And sure. there's, you know, sort of the rise of Amazon, the fall of brick and mortar bookstores uh, is one thing. Ebooks is another thing and, and kind of developments there. Do you see uh, 
those kinds of changes as where do you see those kinds of things headed and what should uh should we just view them as as a loss should we we be excited about the change and how would this all make sense to an entrepreneur it's a great question so i see things as happening in waves because ultimately no one provider of anything can be a provider for everybody and you know you see that already uh, in news right now for example that uh, there, there's actually been a resurgence i don't know if you saw this news but uh, the new york times ran this story very recently about how there's uh, been a resurgence of independent bookstores which is mm. super interesting and and why you know the answer is because although amazon is a very very efficient deliverer of books what it is not is a community mm. meeting point and and, and and it can't be and frankly it doesn't need to be um and I, over and over again what we see are throughout history when you look at like the history of business is you see something new come along and displace an old way of doing something and then everybody wrings their hands and says oh no we have lost this thing and we will never go back and uh, uh, the the Sears catalog can never be toppled right it is now the sole way in which people will ever purchase things and uh, and that's not true because because ultimately once something establishes itself as dominant in a in a marketplace it has to operate efficiently. This is the creator of opportunity for, for entrepreneurs. So when, for example, I mean, here's the perfect example that we've seen shift in, in you know, the last 10, 20 years is, so, you know, what defeated Sears? You could argue that the answer was Walmart. Um, and so Walmart, the, the America's superstore, and they have to focus on what is their core value proposition and how are they going to maximize for themselves and be most efficient in delivering that. And the way that they did it was through physical stores. They opened up tons of physical stores. They experimented with all sorts of ways. They had small stores. They had big stores. They started bringing in groceries. And, you know, as a result, they certainly shifted the retail landscape of a lot of communities. You know, a Walmart superstore would come in and a lot of independent stores would shut down because Walmart was replicating a lot of what they were doing. But in doing so, and then in really doubling down as they had to on the thing that they were doing, they left all sorts of things unattended to. For example, Walmart did not really get into e-commerce, which left the opening for Jeff Bezos to, to move in with Amazon. But also, you know, Walmart, although it, it's a fine place to go and buy cheap goods, it also is not really a community center. And and I think ultimately communities started to say, hey, what would it mean to build retail, not just for retail's sake, but also as a place that serves the community, which is, I think, the reason why coffee shops have risen um, in, in, in such the way that they have, because it's not just a place to buy something. It's a place to meet. It's a, it's a you know, as Starbucks has popularized the idea of the third place. It's not home. It's not work. It's somewhere else. And that is what we'll see over and over again. You know, I mean, you go back to the very beginning of of kind of commerce as we know it, you know, America, America used to be uh, just uh, nothing but local businesses, right? The idea of a chain store didn't really exist uh, until uh, manufacturing became more sophisticated and also transportation became more sophisticated, at which point chain stores started to begin. The, the, the first one being, um, what was it called? Um, uh, A&P, Atlantic and Pacific, Pacific uh, Supermarkets. And, um, and people were in an uproar over it. You had these politicians who, there was literally a, there was a governor, I can't remember what state, that, that compared A&P, the, the first like, kind of main um, major chain store uh, um, compared it to uh, to Hitler and because uh, you know you always win the argument if you compare it to Hitler so uh, but what you know what was happening uh, is pretty interesting right like these chain stores were introducing 
they were introducing economy of scale. So they were actually driving prices down, which hurt local businesses. But let's not forget that actually local businesses were not what we think of now with wonderful mom and pop shops. Usually there was kind of like one uh, a business baron of a, of, a, of a town who would own every store um, and therefore be able to control the prices uh, in the area and then also control who was able to come in. So black people often were not welcomed in these stores. Um, and now, uh, you know, AMP comes along and they have a more industrialized view view of the world, and it actually opens up the economy to more people. So, you know, you get these shifts, and then AMP was toppled, and somebody else is toppled, and, you know, it's not like we're going to live with... If you and I were talking 100 years from now, we wouldn't have... Google and Amazon and Facebook in the way that we know it now. They seem like dominant players today, and they they are, but that doesn't mean that they're dominant tomorrow. Mm. You know, it kind of reminds me of when independent bookstores were first battling against, I guess they were fighting it on two fronts. Uh, they were fighting kind of the Barnes & Noble borders takeovers, and then they started fighting Amazon as mm-hmm. well. And one of the things they would say is, you know, you don't get the recommendations from the staff that we provide. And I always used to think, as a consumer, I don't really want someone talking to me when I'm in a store. <laughs> and so if that's the only thing keeping me from, you know, spending an extra dollar or two, you know, or saving an extra dollar or two or, or maybe a lot more than that and having access to a lot more books. I don't know that this is, you know, I don't know that the guilt is going to outweigh the uh, if that's the only value add you have is that you you want me to come in and have uh, books handpicked for me by uh, a few staffers that I may or may not agree with. It just isn't going to do it. And one of the things I'm, I'm thinking is if independent bookstores are rising again, it could be that they just needed to have this field leveled. Now, I say that there's probably a lot of uh, people who are out of work and so on. So there's probably a lot of pain. And, and this is probably not something for me to I don't want to minimize any of that, but it, it it's almost like sure. when I went to visit Mount St. Helens and you see this landscape that's been totally blasted and covered with ash and, and lava, and you can just see how all of the growth and everything was killed. And then you also see like grass and trees that have shot up and are are you know mm-hmm. living and green and and they look very vibrant and they they, they look like real uh you know entrepreneurs. <laughs> Yeah, we, you know, we, we, uh, I have my philosophy on change, which, which is the, the book Build for Tomorrow is oriented around, is that change happens in four phases panic, adaptation, new normal, wouldn't go back. Mm. And wouldn't go back being that moment where we say, I have something so new and valuable that I wouldn't want to go back to a time before I had it. And it, it's not easy getting there. But I think that the, the analysis that you just had there about local independent bookstores is, is totally right because I think a lot of them were operating under an old idea of, of how they serve the community and possibly we're serving it in a passive way. That's not to, that's not to you know, say that all of them were, you know, there's a lot of great, wonderful stories out there, but you know, businesses have to evolve and they have to adapt and they, and they can never, ever, ever think that just because something works today, it's going to work tomorrow. And sometimes what it takes is a moment of massive disruption to get people to focus on what is the value that people need from me now, not yesterday, doesn't matter what I was working yesterday. And, you know, and frankly, if, you know, if, if you were the only independent whatever in town and people came to you simply because you were the only one there, well, you know, at, at some point that's leaving a lot of opportunity for someone else. I, I live in Brooklyn. There's a there's an independent toy store down the street from us. And uh, a lot of people shop there. But I'll tell you, all the parents in the in the neighborhood, um, you know, and I'm 
I have kids who are seven and three, so I'm in a toy store a lot. All the kids in the all the parents in the neighborhood, we always laugh about how completely unfriendly the <laughs> the owner is, right? I've you know my my wife has talked to her. She's she's been doing this for decades. She her heart's not in it anymore. She really wants to yeah. sell this thing, but um you know like that is not the way that you stay in business. And yes, it is wonderful to have a, a local toy store, but if a toy store if, if the owner doesn't have it in them anymore to continue to evolve and step back and think what does what does this toy store need to be today like i am not i am not able to operate this business simply because i have been operating this business then you need to you need to think through that otherwise you're you're going to go away and i think a lot of the independent bookstores that have come back uh or 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 have managed to survive and now are you know are hopefully thriving now I think I found that answer for themselves. You know, I, I go to, um, well, when my kids were younger. We don't do it as much anymore. But um, th- there was this bookstore called uh, Books or Magic in Brooklyn that we would um, we would go to. And the reason we would go, my wife and I, is not honestly to buy books, to browse the shelves. It was because they had this great kids reading hour in, mm. in the morning. And it was something to do with the kids that we would bring. And they'd have a staffer who'd like read to the assembled kids. And then, of course, while we were there, we would often buy something. But that was a service to the community. And right. I think that that came out of somebody stepping back and saying, what is the relevance to this sto- to the community that I can offer right now? That's, that's right. how you have to think. And my people that I was describing earlier who insisted on thinking the relevance is people are going to wander in and not know what books to buy. And I'm going to have to tell them what good books to buy. Nobody goes, you know, people have so much access nobody and nobody needs that. needs that and nobody really wants it. They, I would rather read it, you know, quickly skim a hundred reviews online or find my trusted book reviewer that I really appreciate and get an idea of what book I was going to read that way. than go in and ask some stranger who. You know, I don't know if they are reliable or not and and so on. Let me ask you this. I did have uh, something to close with here, which is I wonder if this is affecting not just readership when we think of literature and we think of change, but authorship as well. And and in particular, it has occurred to me. I, I started this podcast and I with the idea, the question of whether literature was dying and the idea being you know, a lot of the reasons why people used to keep books on their shelves have kind of gone away. And and one of the big things is the ability of a book to take you to uh, some other place that you've never been or or to hear what it's like to be inside the mind of somebody else. And just thinking, you know, when I started the podcast, blogs were so big and it was kind of like if you really wanted to know what it was like to be you know, a a unmarried mom in Indonesia, you could probably find a blogger who was writing about that. And you didn't necessarily yeah. need to pick up a novel in order to inhabit that world or to, you know, there just seems like there was so much uh, that storytelling was, so much storytelling was being done elsewhere that I didn't know if novels were going to have a place anymore. It's a really good question. Yeah, I, I think when I've looked back at the history of innovation, as, as, as you can tell I have, what I have found is that over and over and over again, people are concerned about a wholesale replacement. They think because this new thing has come along, the old thing is going to disappear. And what almost always happens, I, I can't think of, a, of an instance in which something that was longstanding and valuable to people to totally disappeared. Instead, what happens is that we integrate mm. We, we take the best of the old and we take the best of the new, which is the reason why 
cars did not completely eliminate bicycles from the street. You know, like, in fact, what they did was that they altered the purpose of the bicycle. Right? So the bicycle used to be a, a primary mode of transportation for people. Then a car came along. It was a much more efficient means of doing that. Um, then the bicycle kind of went into a couple different phases. The bicycle became simply a toy for kids for a long time. And now it's a uh, it's an exercise tool, uh, you know, uh, and, and, it's a, and it's a way to get around, um, you know, for people who live in cities and don't want to be using a car. And anyway, there's still plenty of bicycles out there, uh, but they're 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 their purpose and their use has shifted a little bit. And, you know, I think that the same, and you could just, you could just kind of go down the line with that, right? There was a worry that teddy bears were going to replace dolls. That didn't happen. Obviously we have both of them, um, that, uh, radio was going to be replaced by television. We have both. Uh, but, um, and, and then, you know, again, what happened with radio? Well, you know, it exists in, in, in the same form that it did before, but a lot of the energy didn't stay in terrestrial radio, but it did stay in the idea of audio form communication, which is what you and I are doing right mm. now. And it moved into podcasts, which is basically the same thing. It's just on-demand radio. So, I, you know, my, my prediction, um, I, I don't think that people should do a whole lot of predicting about the future because we're often wrong. But for what it's worth, my prediction here is that um, is that nothing nothing slays the novel. I mean, you know, this is this is a form that's been around since at least uh, the Hellenistic novels of ancient Greece. Um, but I do think that it's entirely possible that uh, it, it evolves. Yeah. Um, it, who who exactly it is for evolves the, the 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 means of authorship evolves and maybe the way in which authors use the novel evolve where whereas in past generations the only way in which somebody might tell a story would be the novel and now you know you see plenty of uh, of of novelists um, tell stories in multiple formats uh, and uh, you know they're they 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 write the book they also write the movie and I think that's great you know I I think that ultimately what we need as people is great stories and great storytelling and and a means to share those stories so that we can indeed like you said inhabit other lives and inhabit other other worlds and and because in doing so i think that we gain a better understanding uh of the world and of others and um and i don't see that going away i think that if you if you had a very very strict definition of literature and you wanted to hold to it and and literature looks exactly like what literature looked like in 1967 then like you're going to be disappointed but if you're open to that things evolve and change and that there's always new value ahead, then I think there's so much more to write. Well, I have found this invigorating and inspiring. It has not drained my uh, limited store of energy. <laughs> it has enhanced it. Jason Pfeiffer, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Hey, thank you. This is so much fun. Hey, there we go. My thanks to Jason Pfeiffer for joining me today. You can hear his podcast, Build for Tomorrow and Problem Solvers, wherever you get your podcasts. We have some heavy hitters coming up. Rabindranath Tagore is on the calendar, as is Kierkegaard's Diary of a Seducer. We'll have an Emma's pick for October. Let's see what she comes up with for that Halloween-y month. Lady Chatterley's lover is in the house. Well, not literally. If he was, I'd call the cops, probably. <laughs> but we'll be, <laughs> we'll be going through that book and its influence on a young writer in India. Kurt Vonnegut, the early environmentalist, will be here. And Jane Austen, Jane Austen, Jane Austen. We're tackling Persuasion. Is that her best novel? We will see. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.